Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. Visit us at truthmatterschurch.org. If Jesus is sitting or standing at the right hand of God, does this mean that he has his own throne in heaven at this very moment? Today, Pastor Alex Cataroja digs into this often overlooked phrase to see what Scripture says about the true meaning and significance of the right hand of God. Okay, we will be picking up our study in the book of Revelation, but in fact, we will be kind of taking a tangential study as a result of our last study from the book of Revelation. And this, the title of today's message and our study for today is The Right Hand of God. How many of us have heard of The Right Hand of God? The Right Hand of God. We hear that a lot. And the scripture has a lot to say about the right hand of God. Uh, but the goal for our study today is to really look at it through the lens of scripture to understand what is behind that saying. Uh, so we will, be, we will be looking at the right hand of God and really what does it mean and what does it mean when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of the Almighty. And before we do so, I do think it's a good practice before we move forward that we tie up some loose ends. Uh, so I think it's just, a, it's just good. I want to make sure that we are moving forward, that we are as collective as we can be. And, it, you know, sometimes I think based on the questions, I get a sense and a pulse. You know, maybe um, the, the point wasn't maybe um, come across as, as was intended. So I want to use this, you know, brief time before we go right into our study to tie up some loose ends from our last study. So in a nutshell, in our last study, we learned that he who is, who was, and who is to come in Revelation 1-4 was not talking about the Son. It was talking about the Father. So the takeaway was, and this is one of the mysteries that we probably don't hear enough, and that the Father is coming too. The Father is going to come on earth, his footstool. The Father is coming. But what I want to clarify, and I'm kind of giving you the end, the end of the movie, the end of the, the book, he's not going to come until the very end. The Father. So Jesus is certainly coming again. And we are to keep watch on Jesus' second coming, not the Father. So don't look for the Father to come. It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do want to say this, and stay with us. The Father is going to make a cameo appearance before he comes to earth. Pretty amazing. And we will get there as we progress in our study in the book of Revelation. But just know that the Father is not going to come to earth until after Jesus is done fulfilling his Father's plan. So everything that's written in the Scriptures that Jesus has yet to fulfill, Jesus is going to fulfill them first. Complete everything first, and then offer it back to the Father. Then the Father will come to earth. So I wanted to clarify that concerning the coming of Christ and the Father, the Christ is coming first. And part of, the, I mean, there's so much scriptures and there's so much of the Father's will 
that hasn't been completed yet, um, that, has, uh, that Jesus is going to fulfill. Uh, so just know this too. When Jesus came, what, what did he say all the time? I have come to do the will of him who sent me. So in his first coming, he came to fulfill his father's will on what it encompassed in his first coming. And that is ultimately to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins. You know, to, to be resurrected, glorified, all that good stuff. At the same time, there's, this, there's a lot of promises and prophecies that haven't been fulfilled in Jesus' second coming. And Jesus is going to come back just like his first coming to fulfill the will of his Father. In his second coming, Jesus is going to fulfill the will of his Father. And that would include the wrath judgments. That would include building a temple for his Father. And by the way, in this temple is where the throne will be. Also as part of that second coming and part of his Father's will is to rescue the elect Jews, atoning for Israel's sin, establishing his millennial reign, of course, the rapture, resurrections, bima judgments. There's going to be different judgments. So Jesus has a lot to do. And once he's done all that has been written, then God will dwell among men. The Father will dwell among us. So that's, I wanted to tie that. And what we also learned from our last study is God's throne in heaven. Let's call it the most high throne in heaven. It belongs to the Father and not the Son. As I prepare in our studies, I kind of get a little conflicted because I feel like I'm diminishing the glory of the Son. But I have to stay true to Scripture. Jesus glorified the Father in everything He said and did. It's always His Father, His Father, His Father. But the throne in heaven, it belongs to the Father and not the Son. And we went through that study. We did that mini systematic theology study on throne. And what we came away with was it is the Father's throne and not the Son. That's confirmed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what we also learned is that the Father planned for His Son. That being said, even though the throne in heaven belongs to the Father, the Father wants to give His Son his throne, the Father's throne, to sit on earth. And that was revealed through the Davidic covenant. And that leads us to our tangential study today. We're going to be looking at the right hand of the Father because there's some confusion around Jesus not having a throne. We're like, wait, Jesus doesn't have a throne? But isn't he God? Yes, he is the Son of God more precisely. But but doesn't the Scripture say, well, Jesus sat down or is seated at the right hand of the Father. Doesn't that mean that He has a throne in heaven? So what we're going to do today for our our brief study is we're going to look at Scripture to inform us on what it means when it says Jesus sit or sat or was seated at the right, right hand of the Father. So we're going to look at it as it pertains to Jesus. We're going to look at it narrowly. Okay, what does it mean when it says that Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father? We'll look at it narrowly like that. And then we're also going to look at it broadly. What does right hand of God mean? Which is the title of our message. 
So we're going we're gonna to look at both of that, and we're going to look at it, of course, from the both of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what I'd like to do to set up our study today is I'd like to uh, use for our key passages a, is in Mark and in Hebrews. And let me read that to you. These are the verses that seem to indicate that Jesus sat on a throne. Mark sixteen nineteen. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. So this is during his ascension. And sat down, look, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Presumably, when you sit down, in our, in our reading of it, you sat down on a throne, right? Presumably. And also in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, says something similar. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, and this is speaking of Jesus, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Again, presumably Jesus took his seat on a throne. Doesn't that seem logical? In Mark's passage, it seems logical that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, he sat down on his throne. How many songs have we sang that says Jesus left his throne and he came to earth because he's God in the flesh? We heard something along those lines. So quite logically, if he's going back to where he came from, which is heaven, he's going back to his throne. Kind of that's the logic. And Mark's passage seems to say that. You notice as I said in Barnabas's passage, and just a little side note, if you ask me, who do I think wrote Hebrews? Barnabas. That's another study. But his fingerprints are all over it in the book of Hebrews. So when I say in Barnabas's passage, Jesus as the great high priest took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. So if you're taking notes, and I don't know, are you finding it helpful to insert the persons of the Trinity? Doesn't that help? For me, it helps a great deal because it also makes clear on which person of the Trinity is doing what. Because the mystery of the Trinity is God is three people. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the, the Father or the Son. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three personalities. Yet there's only one God. And in God's redemptive will and plan, it starts with the Father, carried out by the Son, and enacted and brought forth or put into effect by the Holy Spirit. So you have all three persons of the Trinity involved in God's redemptive will and plan. And understanding which person of the Trinity is doing what actually hopefully helps a great deal when we're trying to understand you know, which person of the Trinity is responsible for what. But if you're taking notes, majesty in the Hebrews passage it's the Lord, the capital L-O-R-D, or Yahweh, and that's God the Father, if you're taking notes. And when you look at Scripture, when you see Lord, the lowercase L-O-R-D, or Adonai, or it says Messiah, or branch, or Christ, or anointed one, that is designating God the Son. And when you see God, Elohim, as Jeremy, as you pointed out, 
It's a plural noun in and of itself, and that speaks of the Godhead. There's a, there, there's, is God is plural. God is three persons. So when you see God or Elohim, it's more of a plural designation versus a formal kind of... You're talking about a specific person of the Trinity um, you know, when you use, let's say, Yahweh or Adonai, whereas when you use God or Elohim, you're not necessarily speaking to one of the a specific person of the Trinity, you're just speaking to them collectively as the Godhead. So in both passages, it seems to indicate that Jesus does have a throne in heaven, but as we've concluded in our last study, we've looked through all of Scripture. We looked at when is throne, a throne in heaven mentioned, and there was less than 10. So we looked at all 10 in the Old Testament. And we concluded that, no, it is clear, especially from Daniel's vision, you know, the four beast vision, when he saw his vision into heaven and he saw the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, we, we came away with, no, it's the Father's throne. And there was, nowhere, there was nowhere that we can point to in the Old Testament that said that Jesus had his very own throne. So what we're going to do for our study is we're going to look at what does it mean when it says that Jesus sits, sat, or was seated at the right hand of his Father. And of course, we're going to stay true to our rules of engagement. We must interpret Scripture with Scripture. So when it says at the right hand of the Father, well, what does Scripture tell us about the right hand of the Father or the right hand of God? And then that'll you know, inform us on really what is being communicated. So what we're going to do, first of all, if you were to go to the two passages, the, the Mark and the Hebrews passage, our key passages for today, we're going to have to look at the original Greek. So in both passages, when it says sat down or taken a seat, it's the Greek verb kaizo. And kaizo, it means, it does mean to sit down. It does mean sat or to sit. But here's something also. Kaizo, it can also mean to be appointed or rested or to be settled in. And here's an important note, and we we will see this in the Scripture. Kaizo, when it says Jesus sat down or Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, it signifies an appointment to a high office or one who is enthroned, you know, royalty enthroned. So to demonstrate this, that kaitzo, at least the equivalent of it in the Hebrew, I'd like to refer again back to Zechariah chapter 6. So let's relook at Zechariah 6 verses 12 and 13. Then they said to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, Messiah, for he will branch out from where he is, and he, Messiah, will build the temple of the Lord, his Father. Yes, it is he, Messiah, who will build the temple of the Lord, his Father, and he, Messiah, will bear the honor and sit and rule on his, the Father's throne. Thus he, Messiah, will be a priest, on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. And I mentioned this earlier. When we're talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father's at the top. You're like, wait, wait, wait a minute, but isn't the Son co-equal with the Father, the Holy Spirit co-equal, they're, co- they're co-deity, equally God, 
all that, yes. But in terms of the Godhead, who's at the top? The Father. Just kind of to kind of put, the, you know, to really an emphasis on that, the Father has granted all authority to the Son. If you were to grant or delegate authority by virtue of you doing that already shows you that you're at the top. So when we're looking at all of authority, ultimately it, goes, it comes from God, ultimately. And more at the very top, all authority is with the Father. But so that all may honor the Son, the Father has delegated all authority to the Son, but not the Father's authority. So just know that in the Godhead, the Father is at the top. Which means the throne in heaven, it belongs to the Father, as I mentioned. But here's something, and I don't want to confuse this too much, because if you look at the Zechariah passage that we just read, and it says His throne, that Messiah will sit on His throne, technically it's the Father's throne. Technically. But the Father has given the throne or delegated the the throne to his son. So even in the transferring of authority from the father to the son, even when there is a throne in heaven, and then now the throne is going to be on earth, that is, the father is at the top. But the son has equal rights and equal authority to sit on the throne. And I mentioned this, when I'm trying to get technical like this, I feel like I'm taking away from the glory of Christ. But the Father is at the top. Look at the life of our Lord Himself. Look at Him. He says, no one is greater than my Father, and I and my Father are one. One in unity, one in relationship, one in essence. But He, it's His Father, it's His Father, it's His Father. He says, His will, Jesus, is to do the will of Him who sent me. Jesus came because the Father sent him. And the fact that you are being sent means the one who is sending you is greater than you at the top. And it's kind of like uh, when you kind of look at Jesus, when he went and sent his disciples to, and he commissioned them to make disciples, he sent them. So the fact that Jesus is sending his disciples by, by Jesus sending them is showing that he is superior and higher in authority than the apostles. He granted or delegated them authority as his father granted and delegated him his authority, if that makes sense. But the father is at the top. And all glory and honor, yes, we're, we're going to love and adore Christ for who he is and what he's done, but it's all to the glory of God the Father at the end. Jesus did what he did for the glory of of the Father, and He shares in that glory because He is the one and only Son. So, in the passage in Zechariah, it does say that Messiah will bear and sit and rule on His, it's really the Father technically, but you can say Messiah's throne too. So when Jesus sits on His throne on earth, He's going to bear the honor He's going to sit and rule on his father's throne that has been given to him with all authority and power. And he's doing that 
ultimately to fulfill his father's will for him. And based on Zechariah 6, Yahweh's Messiah, okay, when you're looking at the Old Testament, who do you, um, who do you think is going to set the terms on who Yahweh's Messiah is going to be? Who's at the very top? The Father. So Yahweh's Messiah, Jesus, so the, the Father says, okay, son, you are my chosen one. You are my anointed one. I'm going to send you to the world to be the savior of man. And part of what I want you to do, my one and only son, is I want you to build a temple for me. David had it in his heart to build a temple for me. And yes, although his son Solomon ultimately built a temple for me, but ultimately, son, I want you to build a temple for me. That's part of what Yahweh's Messiah is tasked to do. And on top of that, son, the father wants him to establish a throne for his father on earth, and he wants his son to sit and bear the honor of his father's throne and rule on it. And in addition to the father setting the terms on who the Messiah will be, and he chose his son, he's saying, in addition Yahweh himself appointed Messiah to two offices, king and priest. Scripture tells us that Jesus is our great high priest who has gone through the heavens. And it's speaking about a great high priest office that was determined by God the Father. And the priesthood is also an office that was determined by his Father and he has selected his Messiah, his anointed one, to sit in that office as well. So in addition to being Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Savior of the world, the Father also wants his Son to sit as king and priest over all. So here's where, here's where I'm getting at with this. Yahweh's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be seated, kaitso, in both offices as king and as priest. A good way to look at kind of kaitso. So let's just look at our, us here in the United States and our form of government. We have the office of the president. We say, oh, you sit in that office. But technically, you know, you, you, you're not necessarily in that office. You can be visiting countries, but yet you are sitting Kaizo, because you have been selected, and let's say for us, in the, form of, in, uh, in the form of democracy and electoral college, and now you are seated or seated in that office. So could you be sitting in that office literally? There is a literal office? Yes. But do you necessarily have to sit in that office? No. But you are in that office, if that makes sense. So God the Father will himself appoint and enthrone Kaitso, his chosen Messiah, God the Son, in both offices. So, although the temple has not been, been built by Messiah yet, nor has the throne been established in the temple on earth yet, 
Messiah, nonetheless, he sits or he is seated, kaizo, in both offices in heaven, and it's going to manifest itself on earth. Let me say that again. Even though the temple is not built on earth yet, and that's part of the tasks that the Son is tasked to do by the Father, even though it's not done yet, it's that the temple that Jesus is going to build hasn't been built yet. And the throne that he will establish in the temple hasn't been built yet, but he's already seated in the heavens. And the time will come when it's going to come to fruition. And when you think about, I mean, really, this is the heart of our Lord's prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, he's talking to the Father. Hallowed be thy name. He's still talking to the Father. Thy kingdom come. Whose kingdom? The Father. This is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy Father, your kingdom come. Your will, Father, be done on earth as it is in heaven. And part of the Father's will is that his Son will build that temple, will establish his throne, and his Son will sit on that throne so that all, may honor, all who may honor the Father would honor the Son. It's in our Lord's prayer. But Jesus is seated in that office right now. So is it a literal physical seat yet? No. But will it be? Yes. Yes. So now let's look at, re-look at Hebrews 8 one more time. 1 and 2. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has taken a seat, kaizo, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. So here's what's interesting. So remember I was mentioning, at first glance it seems, well, Jesus has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. At first glance, doesn't it seem that Jesus has a throne? Actually, the opposite is true. Why? It tells us that Jesus sat down, not on the throne, but at the right hand of the, ma- uh, the, right hand of the throne of the majesty. Meaning, this passage actually tells us whose throne it is. It's not Jesus' throne, but it's the majesty's. Again, who's the majesty? We've established it's Yahweh. The capital L-O-R-D. It is God the Father. So interesting how at first glance it seems to say one thing, but it's actually saying the opposite. So Barnabas tells us that Jesus took his seat, kaizo, at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father. And so from here, what I'd like to do, I think we've got that kind of clear, right? Jesus is seated in the offices that his Father has, I guess you can say, created or spoken to being, and that that hasn't, even though he's sitting in that office now, he will ultimately sit physically on a throne on earth. But what I'd like to do is, okay, we kinda, I think we can kind of follow with that, but just know there's so much more to the right hand of God than just what I've said. That was less looking at it narrowly Now, what I'd like to do is I'd I'd like to look at the Scriptures more broadly. What does the right hand of God signify? What is it associated with? So that we can kind of pull this all together. 
And we're familiar with the, many of us, the Genesis account, where before Jacob or Israel passed away, he gave a blessing. And he passed the blessing to one of Joseph's two sons. But here, what we're going to see is this blessing came with the right hand of Israel. And let's read that account. So Joseph took both of them, both of his sons, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. When Joseph saw this, saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, this is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. So let me kind of pause here. So here's kind of the scenario. So Israel, he's at the end of life. He's, he's about to die. But before he dies, he wants to give his blessing. And with Joseph, he had two sons. He had Manasseh and he had Ephraim. So he, he saw Israel's right hand. Let's just say he, if Israel was sitting down, he wanted to put the firstborn towards his right hand and then his younger with his left hand. And he brought him up to his father. And what happened was he, Israel ended up crossing his hands like this. And his right hand ended up going on the younger Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. But the scripture tells us Joseph was displeased with that. He's like, no, my father, place your right hand on Manasseh, not Ephraim. Why is that? Well, even in ancient times, you know, this is just indicated here. There was something special about the right hand. Because why does it matter? But it did matter to Joseph. But here, the blessing followed the right hand. If you follow the story of Genesis, and especially when you follow beginning with Abram or Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the blessing was spoken, and it was transferred, in this case, with the right hand. So right hand, even in ancient times, it's associated with blessing or the blessed one. So the fact that Israel swapped his hands and put his right hand on Ephraim, Ephraim is the blessed one. He's going to get the blessing. Yeah, Manasseh got the blessing, but it went to Ephraim. And in ancient times, the firstborn, there was a lot of weight on the firstborn. Actually, in, many, in, in some cultures today, I'm sure that still exists, to being the firstborn, let's say, son, for example. There are some kind of rights and privileges that come with it. So even in ancient times, if you were the firstborn, in this case, son, then as far as the inheritance goes, you would probably get you know, double portion or whatever it may be. But there was, there was blessing culturally in being the firstborn but in this case the blessing went to the younger which is against the cultural practices of at least Joseph's day but just know that the right hand from you know Jacob or Israel the blessing that he spoke with his right hand went to Ephraim 
and not Manasseh. Got it? Let's keep going. We're looking at, okay, what does the right hand, what does it signify? Because that'll also clarify what we were just talking about when it says Jesus sat at the right hand, because it's all going to come together. Uh, In Exodus 15, and here Moses and the sons of Israel were singing of their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. And here's what uh, Exodus 15 verse 6 says. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. And that's speaking of Pharaoh's chariots and army. So the scripture tells us, you know, when when Moses parted the Red Sea, it was by the power of God's right hand. So right hand is associated with majestic power and able to shatter one's enemies. And I do want to make a side note here. The song of Moses in the deliverance in Exodus 15, there is a parallel to this and the scene in heaven when we get to Revelation 15, when the 144,000, now redeemed at that time, sang the song of Moses and the song of the land. So there's a parallel on the song of Moses and Israel singing it of their deliverance in Exodus 15, and it'll come to its fruition also in Revelation 15. Let's keep going. Psalms, so Psalm 16, verse 11 You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in in Psalm 1611, right hand is associated with pleasure and being pleased. So the right hand, let's say, of God gives pleasure and takes pleasure. So in the case of Jesus... It's both because the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So if you want to say sticking with the Scripture, the Father sent the Son with His right hand. And the Father was giving pleasure by giving us His Son, and He was taking pleasure with his, you know, in His Son. So the Father is sharing His, greater, his greatest pleasure and joy with us. The scripture says more about right hand. That your uh, Psalm 60, verse 5, that your beloved may be delivered. He goes, save with your right hand and answer us. So right hand is also associated with saving, being Savior. Uh, Psalm 48:10, as is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Right hand is associated with righteousness. It also is associated with the possessor of righteousness. The possessor of righteousness. So if you are sitting at the right hand of God, that's also saying that you are a possessor of righteousness. And as we know, the reason why you and I could even be considered righteous before a holy God is because of the righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to us. And imputed is another word for saying there's a transaction. When you put your faith, when you repent of your sins, 
and put your faith in Jesus as Messiah, as Savior. In return, Jesus says, I'm going to give you my righteousness. And that's from God's right hand. That's from God's right hand. Remember, it's associated with saving and it's associated with being righteous, a possessor of righteousness, and one who can impute righteousness to us. Well, another one in the Psalms, and this is the popular one. Jesus quoted this. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, God the Father, says to my Lord, Adonai, God the Son, sit, yashab. That's the equivalent of kaitso. It's the equivalent. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So sit, yashab, it also means to dwell, inhabit, endure, stay, remain. And that is precisely the same thing that is being communicated in our key passages in Mark 16, 19, and Hebrews, 1, uh, Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. Um, let's look at one more in the Old Testament. Proverbs 3.16 Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. So long life is also associated with God's right hand. And in the case of God or Christ, eternal life. And by the way, and this is just for the screen, a little side note here. I was like, so is God right-handed? I was like, but he must be ambidextrous, right? He must be ambidextrous. I mean, he's God Almighty, but everything is about his right. But here in Proverbs 3.16, it says, Let in her left hand are riches and honor. I was like, well, there's the left hand. There it is. Did you know I checked every reference of left hand, and this is the only one where even left hand had any blessing associated with it. It's all with the right hand. Are you kind of getting an idea? Right hand means more than meets the eye. And it's associated with all those things. And we're going to summarize it at the end. And we just looked at the Old Testament. Now let's look at the New Testament when it speaks of the right hand. Matthew 26, 64. And this is Jesus standing trial before the Sanhedrin. This is prior to him getting crucified. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So if you recall that account, they're pretty much saying, you know, don't keep us in suspense. Tell us if you are the Christ. And this was his response. You said it yourself, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So sitting is the same, you know, from the same root word, it's kathimai, um, but it, this in here, in Matthew 26, 64, it's, it means to be enthroned in the future. You, you will see, right, you will see that something that's going to happen ahead of that time. He's making the statement that Jesus will be sitting at the right hand of, of power, and it's speaking about Jesus being enthroned, yet future. And I do want to make a side note here on, on this particular verse. Right now we're in Revelation 1.5. When we get a couple of verses later, you know what John says? Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even 
those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Now, I don't want to spoil it too much. But when Jesus told the Sanhedrin that you will see the Son of Man, he's saying you, he's talking to them, Sanhedrin, who he's standing trial before, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. They're the ones who pierced him. I don't want to spoil it, but when Jesus comes back, they will be here to see it. That's going to come to fruition. They, the Sanhedrin, will see the Lord Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of power and him coming on the clouds of heaven. Pretty remarkable stuff. So I just gave you a clue. There's going to be a resurrection prior to that coming in order for that to come to fruition. So that's a little, I'll kind of give you a little purview of what we will be learning as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, And let's look at Acts when it speaks of right hand. Acts 2.33, it says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And as we know, that's the context of Pentecost. But here, right hand is associated with being exalted. Exalted. And as we've learned in our past studies, the Father exalted the Son. And you can say that the Father, by His right hand, exalted His Son. Uh, Acts 5.31 says the same thing. He who is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And Prince is another term for king. You can even say king and savior. And as we know, one of the two offices is king and priest. But being God's anointed or chosen one, that makes Jesus to the savior of Israel and all mankind. Uh, here, here's one interesting one. Are, are you staying with me? Yeah. You didn't know you are going to learn that much about right hand, did you? But this... I'm trying to clear up confusion so that now when you see when it says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, you're not going to be like, oh, well, that means he's sitting on the throne in heaven. That's not what it's saying. He will be sitting on a throne on earth eventually, and he's sitting in the offices created by his Father even now. But in Acts 7, verses 54 to 56, and here's the stoning of Stephen is the context. And let's pick it up in verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. Ooh, there's something a little different. Standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, I don't know about you. Have you, have any of you heard teaching that Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father? That means he got up from his throne to see what's going on? I heard that. I heard that. Did you hear something like that? It might indicate, oh, Jesus is standing at the right hand. He's not sitting, because the other one says he is seated, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Here he is standing. So he got up. 
Well, that can't be accurate. Why? Well, we just looked at the entire Bible and nowhere can we point to that says that Jesus has a throne in heaven. Here's what it means. He was standing to the right of his father and witnessed the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen was allowed to see into the heavens and seeing Jesus to the right of his father. Not he got up on a throne, but that he was quite literally standing to the right hand of his father. Pretty cool stuff. So let's pull this all together. So God the Father, through the Davidic covenant, promised the throne for his son. So technically, and I think we kind of got this, Jesus is throneless for now. But when the scripture says that Jesus is you know, sitting down or being seated at the right hand of the Father, here's what it really means. Using Now we, use, we look at all of scripture, Old Testament and New. Here's what it means when it says Jesus is seated or is sitting or sat at the right hand of the Father. Here's what it means. Jesus sits or occupies two offices, at least, right? There's more. But the two offices, at least spoken of in Zechariah 6, as king and priest. Jesus is sitting in that office right now. Jesus will be enthroned. He will be crowned king and priest by his Father. Jesus is the blessed one of the Father. Jesus is one with the Father in majestic power. So that's another way to say when Jesus is seated at the right hand of God is also saying, Jesus, you are one with the Father in majestic power. Jesus, you know, sitting at the right hand of the Father also means that Jesus, you are pleasing to the Father. Jesus, by you sitting or being seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, you are Savior. Jesus, by sitting at the right hand of God or the right hand of the majesty, Jesus, you are righteousness. And Jesus, by you sitting or being seated at the right hand of the Father, the Father has exalted you to glory. And last but not least, when it says, when we read any passages that says Jesus you know, is sitting or seated or sat at the right hand of the Father, Jesus will eventually sit and rule on his Father's throne on earth. And this is the throne that was promised and affirmed through the Davidic covenant. So there is more than meets the eye. When we see you know, Jesus being you know, seated or sitting at the right hand of the Father, here's what it means. When it says, when the scripture says Jesus is sitting or seated at the right hand of the Father, it's another way to say God the Father granted all authority in heaven and on earth except the Father's authority and Jesus will occupy those two offices determined by his Father as king and priest and he will sit and rule on that throne in his Father's anoma and in his Father's honor and authority so that all would honor the Son. So it doesn't mean that he sat down on a throne, but he will. Amen? Amen. 
So we did two kind of mini systematic theology studies on throne, and now on the right hand, and now when you see the right hand, you're going to look at it differently, right? You're going to look at it through the lens of Scripture now. The right hand of God. So easily misunderstood, but thankfully Scripture has a wealth of information about this phrase. And with this little bit of homework, we can now see more into the incredible relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is just one more reason we need to be careful in applying our preconceived notions as we study Scripture. We thank you so much for listening today and do hope that you were blessed by this study. Be sure to mark us as a favorite on Sermon Audio or subscribe to Truth Matters Church on your favorite podcasting platform. And if the Lord has put it on your heart to support this ministry, you can do so at truthmatterschurch.org give. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.